right, we're going to transition to our live, sort of live podcast. We're going to have the next, I don't know, maybe 40 minutes, 35, 40 minutes to talk about radio ligand therapy, which is obviously some new data coming up. I'm going to, for the purpose of the podcast, have, the, um, have you all reintroduce yourselves real briefly. Sure. Michael Morris, Section Head of Prostate Cancer at Memorial Sloan Kettering. Randy McKay, GU Medical Oncologist at the University of California in San Diego. Tanya Dorf, uh, Section Chief for Genital Urinary Cancer at City of Hope in California. Niraj Agarwal, GU Medical Oncologist, Huntsman Cancer Institute, University of Utah. Awesome. Thank you all for joining. So we're going to start with the vision data, which Mike presented last year. Mike, I'm going to have you just go over this slide real quickly. We're going to talk about, just to set the stage for, this, for the podcast and the session, kind of current use of lutetium and where are we and what are we doing in practice, sort of practical stuff. We'll then go to PSMA4, just presented at ESMO and RPFS and OS, and then the last part is just around the future and where are we going in new drugs and combos. So sure, just, going to just kick us off. Very briefly, the vision trial was a trial of metastatic CRPC patients post uh, one NHT and, or more and post one chemotherapy or more. Uh, who are PSMA AVID uh, by a gallium 68 PSMA uh, PET CT, relatively easy criteria, screen failure rate of only 13%. Uh, the hazard ratio of overall survival uh, was a, which demonstrated about a 40% uh, reduction in the risk of dying um, in favor of lutetium, 60% reduction in the risk of uh, radiographic progression or death. Patients were randomized to either standard, a, a protocol-defined standard of care, which excluded chemotherapy and radium, um, plus or minus lutetium. Uh, and the drug was approved in this space and has been part of the standard of care in this space uh, for quite a while, All right, about a year. All right, and I think we're just going to, we're not going to sort of d dive into the details. I think we did that last year. Uh, let's talk about current practice patterns. So this is just... This is sort of what we do in practice, and we'll sort of go down these sort of in turn. So as, as you said, Mike, in the vision trial and in practice, we select based on PSMA scan results. So Raina, maybe start with you. Um, how do you do it in practice? What's your SUV cutoff? You know, there was the vision criteria, but then I find in real life, you know, and sometimes the reports aren't perfect and they don't tell you, you know, how do you handle that? Um, through great collaboration with our nuclear medicine team. I think, um, uh, you know, as we were rolling out uh, Lutetia and PSMA at our institution, we actually instituted a tumor board and integrated nuclear medicine into the tumor board and actually discussed these patients in real time and kind of, there's a there's a finesse in art to, I think, kind of um, applying the data, ensuring that they have a recent PSMA PET scan, um, teasing out if there's non-PSMA avid disease, understanding what the background noise is in the liver, what the background noise is in the blood, blood pool to really try to ensure that they kind of align with the, you know, um, uh, imaging criteria, the imaging biomarker utilized in this trial. And in, in your institutional review, do you find the same amount of PSMA negative, which was what, like, like 15% from vision, something like that? Yeah, yeah, I don't think that that's too far off. Okay. Yeah. Tanya, how do you, how, what are your thoughts on this, selecting patients? Do you just use vision criteria for everybody, or do you have some modification? No, we stick with the vision criteria. Um, I think, uh, you know, we looked at the UCLA experience where they treated patients who didn't meet vision criteria uh, with the lutetium during, lutetium PSMA during compassionate access, and it, it really does not seem to work. So I think um, it's, 
In the future, I hope we'll have better PSMA pet selection criteria. I think it's pretty clear that higher avidity yeah. results in greater benefit when we're thinking about sequencing our effective drugs. Um, eventually, I hope we'll have more stringent criteria that will allow us to use our drug best. Do you use, so you said higher SUV is better response. I know there was some data, I think, at ASCO this year. If you're deciding between lutetium and, I don't know, something else like those questions, do you use that? You say, well, this SUV was only 10 and the, this other one was higher, and so... I mean, not, you know so, what I'm saying? Like, not yeah. so specifically. Um, I'm not going to hold it to numbers, but you know, there's a good fault too. When you look at a PSMA pet, like, wow, there's a lot of disease that's PSMA avid, and you look at another one, and maybe there's not so much, and maybe now it's not the time when you're going to get the most out of that treatment, especially in a landscape where you do have other options. But it's always a conversation with the patient, and patient preference really can shift what you end sure. up doing as well. If they meet criteria, and maybe you think, well, there's not so much avidity, maybe I'd like to use this later and use something else now, but the patient really um, prefers this over other options. Um, you know, we have to treat the patient in the room. Yeah, sure. It's important to recognize, though, that although the SUV mean of 10 is or higher is an inflection point in terms of increased benefit, everyone, regardless of their SUV mean or max, did better with lutetium. On the, uh, on the treatment arm than on the control arm. I see what you're saying. But that's so, with the control arm of second ARSI. Correct. We don't know how that would have shaken Absolutely. out with chemo. Right? But I, I just don't, I don't want people to think that, oh, if I don't have an SUV max or mean a 10, I shouldn't, the patient will not benefit from this treatment. And that's certainly you know? not what yeah. I'm doing either. I think you yeah. can't just look at the SUV numbers. Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk about dosing. So in vision, it was six doses every six weeks, regardless of response. Like I said, patients clinically progressed, right? They came off, but, but um, the next slide I have is about adaptive dosing from NZP. Maybe let me show that real quickly, and then I'll come back to this slide. So this was NZP that Louise Emmett presented in at ESMO a couple weeks ago. I'm really showing it for that box on the right where they did, they had baseline scan, they got two doses, uh, then they had a repeat PSMA scan, and I believe if they were still had positivity, then they got two more doses. So it was a max of four doses, not six, and it was adapting, adaptive based on their PSMA response. And it wasn't compared to the standard or anything like that, but it was just sort of novel dosing, which to me makes all the sense in the world, right? But it's not how we do it, right? Let me just go back one slide. Actually, keep oh, it right there, oh, oh. because the picture is worth a thousand words. Look at that day 92 scan. You gonna treat that patient with lutetium? Actually, that's the positive patient. He got another two doses, I think. Not the one at the top. Okay, there's. Yeah. Okay, I'm thinking. <laughs> but Raina's point is a, right. is a good one. I'm trying to. See, maybe I can't see the red <laughs> dots. But we can't see the dots from here. But yeah. But if the patient's scan is completely negative and they don't have any avid PSMA disease, then what are you doing with continued treatment? So I think this is it's still experimental, but very provocative to think about adapting adaptive dosing because. You're imaging your target here, and if you don't see your target. Is there any reason, Michael, yeah. to say, well, okay, I totally take your point, but like sometimes we'll give two cycles past CR, which I know is also made up, but like, yeah, you don't see your target anymore, but maybe there's a little bit that we can't see on this scan because yeah. it's not sensitive enough, so let's give them a little more. 
I'm right. not saying that's rational. But, I'm just saying but, like um, you're thinking in terms of chemotherapy, where the dose of chemotherapy and the AUC of chemotherapy is the same, regardless of what the tumor burden is, right? Yeah. The AUC is, yeah. is is determined by your injected dose. That's not true of radioligand therapy, okay? Because the dose is determined by how much radiation is actually adhering to the tumor. So the less that you have, the less that you will dose. So you're actually dosing less and less drug for a, a diminishing tumor burden. So if you don't actually see the disease, you're delivering really very, very little radiation to the disease. Now that's true of the betas in particular, but for the alphas, I think you have a good point, which is there you My could target micrometastatic disease even if you don't see it. But that's its own that, yeah, investigational that's what I was question. To. No. <laughs> We're going to talk about the alphas at the end, but Brian, yeah. Oh, go ahead, One Tony. small question sure. is that unlike radium 223, where you know PSA was not reliable, PSA here, you know, is reliable. Why can't we, in this situation where you have near CR, use PSA? I mean. And then for Michael, that's one question. And the other one for all of you, how much one dose of uh, lutetium PSMA cost? I have no idea. So you're saying, first question is, can you use just PSMA to dose? Not necessarily repeat No, the, the, the first, PSA, you give four. PSA, sorry, did yeah, I Yeah, you give four, and then yeah, you have a great response, maybe not CR, but then you look at the how the PSA number, because the question is having two more, how much each infusion costs? I agree with your, framework that we should be using a biomarker to stop dosing and keeping your powder dry for the next time, but I wouldn't use PSA. I would use PSMA as for the, so if you have a CR on the scan, then I think it's worth exploring these alternative dosing schedules in which you say, I'm gonna stop. But you could make PSA go down to zero but still have an avid PSMA scan. You know that there's treatable disease still there. I would say go ahead and treat that. So do you do any mid-cycle scans or? We do, yes. Yeah. We do a dosimetry scan after each dose uh, to see what the uptake is. And I would say that in the right context, so if a patient, for example, has some emerging xerostomia or durable uh, thrombocytopenia, but they're responding, we will stop. And then give the patient some time to relapse and then restart. How often do you do that? 10% of the patients, half of them? I would say, uh, 10 to 20% of patients. Okay, so a good, a good chunk. Yeah. Brian, one more question. Sure. Uh, so with enzalutamide and many drugs we pushed in prostate cancer to the end, we saw an emergence of small cell. I mean, these are reports. Are you seeing now some emergence of neuroendocrine differentiation in patient, you know, after? So. Okay. I don't think so. The mechanism of action is different. Niraj, did you want to say Yeah, something? I just want to uh, create an opposite scenario when patients are not responding after two cycles of lutetium 177. And I really like the design of the trial by Anis Hamid, uh, brilliant design. Why don't we just switch them over to cabazitaxel if they have no response? And compare that with continuation of lutetium 177, and I'm sure uh, early switching in non-responder will be superior to continuation. Makes just sense. wanted to make that point. Yeah, I think following up with PSMA PET scans actually is really important, and it may not be something that everyone does consistently. How do you, um, how do, you do it? 
So I will check a PSMA PET after two or three doses, kind of depending on, you know, if, if PSA is clearly dropping and their pain is getting yeah. better and it's clear they're benefiting, I don't need that scan after two doses to tell me it's working. I want to do it a little later to see if resistance is emerging. You would only do it if you wanted to stop, perhaps. Um, when I'm confused, when the patient maybe isn't getting better or worse, the PSA is kind of fluctuating and you're not sure is this drug working, or if there's discordance, like PSA is down but the patient's clearly getting worse um, with symptoms, you want to see is there maybe now some new liver metastasis that are not PSMA avid. So I think it is important to think about using the PSMA PET scans as a way to understand whether the treatment's working because it does not make sense to plow through six doses if it's not Agreed. helping. I guess what, <clears throat> what I was saying is if you're three cycles in, the patient's doing wonderful and clinically better, if you did a PSMA and it's negative, you could use that information to stop therapy. You can, yeah. yeah but you're, you're not using it that way. No, I would. I think you, everyone's raising that it's experimental to do that kind of adaptive yeah. dosing, but it's something we're interested in, sure. So do you all repeat PSMAs mid, PSMA scans after three cycles, or? Yeah. yeah. Two or three. No yeah. insurance problems getting them paid for? So no, far. so much, no? yeah. Okay. And that's what I meant by my 10 to 20% of using that PSMA scan to, to either stop therapy or for progression, give a pause to, for a response, or just continue on. We, it is useful information. Yeah. You do make uh, treatment decisions using those PSMA scans. So I think it's a, it's a great thing to incorporate into future studies. Okay. I, I, I just have a question ahead. for Mike and everybody else uh, who have used this more than me. Do you may, uh, take into account in your decision making as far as using lutetium is concerned, if there is a PSMA negative lesion present, especially in the liver or visceral metastasis, how does it affect your decision to use lutetium? You don't. Yeah. <laughs> you don't. We see that, um, you know, I recently had a patient with a lung nodule that wasn't PSMA avid. And I think when things don't make sense clinically, you got to keep probing. You can't just be like, oh, it's nothing. We resected that lung nodule, sampled it, and it had mixed adeno and, and neuroendocrine. And so I think um, when things are discordant, uh, it warrants further investigation. Would so you ever? E so even when the whole body is litting up, SUV max 20, and you have one lung nodule or one liver lesion, which is PSMA negative, you still not use lutetium. I mean, that that's my, with that's my criteria. That's a real life scenario so I'm talking a, about. I think that that's where you use your clinical judgment. Let's say you have all that lytic disease that is progressing, but that lung lesion isn't progressing, then I think it's reasonable to treat all of that lytic disease. But on the reverse, where the lytic disease is stable and the lung lesion that's negative is growing, then there's, you know, you're going to have yeah. to address the progression. So you disease. don't necessarily rule it out. No, I, based on one negative lesion. Yeah. Do you ever do local therapy, like to that? Absolutely, yeah. you could yeah. do SBRT yeah. to the uh, to and the treat, isolated visceral uh, disease. Yeah. Okay. Right. All right, we're going to move on. The interesting right. time. Oh, Look, can I just ask you a question? Oh, yeah, please. Great, great, great discussion. By the way, great panel. Thank you. So it's interesting to hear this discussion, which I completely agree is very thoughtful. I'm just wondering how different it is from the reality. Because, you, know, I, I, you know, don't you guys think, doesn't the panel think that, you know, um, folks out there reading baseline pets 
it's it's not applicable. It's not applying the vision rules, right? I don't think most places, from what I talk to community colleagues, you know, are actually looking for SUV maxes, SUV means. I, I think they're actually looking at the pet results, which, by the way, sometimes happened six and nine months ago, you know, especially where they were waiting several, several, several weeks to get access to Pulvicto, to Lutetium, right, and do something else is bridging them to that. So they might be using a pet that basically not really baseline. And then they're looking as like, well, positive results on positive uh, spots on the PSMA, he's eligible for lutetium, which is very different from, you know, if we go to therapy, SUV max over 20, P-Vision, SUV over 10, the, this therapy, the ENZA study, the adaptive dose, I think was SUV 15. So that's one point. And the other point is, you know, we're hearing about using this, you know, PET scans while we go through lutetium with very thoughtful thoughts, and by the way, the Europeans have done a lot of work on that as well, right, about you know how many doses are needed, do we need to personalize those, and so forth. But actually, on vision study, this, I mean, we use conventional scans, right, CT and bone. We actually didn't use PETs. And so, you know, how do you reconcile what our conversation is, which to me is we trying to understand better what's going on versus what's going out there, which I think a lot of times sounds like it's like almost like the Wild West. I think that that's the difference between <laughs> trial design and regulatory endpoint, regulatory recognized endpoints, and clinical practice in which you're trying to do the best thing for an individual patient. And but I agree with you though that how, you know getting a report for if you're a commu community doc with a community radiologist that informs you as to what's going on in the PSMA PET and whether you should be treating the patient or not, if it seems like a good candidate or not, or not. Like everyone on the panel has already said, you really need that nuclear medicine partner. Yeah. You know, you, the multidisciplinary team, the, ex, the shared expertise there can't be understated because you really, really have to have that expertise on board. I, mean, I think it's like applying drugs to any real-world population outside of a trial. It's the same thing. This is sort of unique because it's a scan read and it involves a different discipline, but it's kind of the same, right? Patients we treat don't meet perfect eligibility criteria, but we do it anyway. But, but I think, Pedro, you bring up an excellent point because there's so much variability. I mean, even in the scan report template, there's variability. You get these <laughs> reports in and you know, some of them, they don't have a reference standard. You don't know what the blood pool. So I think we've got a long ways to go with empowering our community oncologists and community radiologists over how we actually roll out um, NukeMed, you know, these uh, PSMA PET imaging. And there's going to be other um, advanced imaging tools and these radio ligand therapies. I mean, this was new territory, right? I'm sure we all yeah. struggled within our institution. I know we did. I don't think yeah. Carrie Schaefer's here, but like just the logistics of doing this was daunting, yeah. right? I mean, so, all right, we're going to move on in the interest of time. So we're going to talk about PSMA 4 which uh, Oliver Sarter presented a couple weeks ago at ESMO. As you all know, this was, in essence, vision pre-chemo, right? It was vision study pre-chemo, so Letitian PSMA Almost. versus uh, ARPI change, Abier Enza, RPFS endpoint. Um, and I think I have a composite slide of the, of the data, so just for the podcast audience. So RPFS hazard ratio about 0.4, so very impressive RPFS hazard ratio. Those curves split at about two months and then get wider apart. 
you see uh, so the medians of about almost a doubling of the median PFS, a tripling of the PSA 50 response, and then radiographic response rates, uh, including a 21% complete response rate. So I think, to me, sort of clear and maybe unsurprising clinical benefit, and then also um, toxicity, I think, which, Michael, correct me, was really with in line with what you would have expected from the vision trial. Better than it was Better. expected. So Perhaps because it's a more fit population. Yeah, the heme tox was uh, significantly lower. And uh, if you look at the comparison between the ARSIs and, and the lutetium, uh, less fatigue on the lutetium arm, fewer treatment discontinuations on the lutetium arm. So okay. I, I think everyone was really nicely su su yeah. surprised by how t well tolerated lutetium was in this earlier patient population. Anybody on the panel want to comment on efficacy? Anything that surprised you or was just like, yeah, I expected this? Was the magnitude of benefits surprising one way or the other? So I was expecting higher benefit. Uh, in what way? In the PFS. In the, okay. Uh, just looking at the uh, uh, other drugs which have been tested, for example, if you look at enzolutamide, in the affirmed trial post-chemo, then you move to pre-chemo, it literally doubles, then you go to Arches trial in hormone-sensitive setting, again doubles. So uh, I think this is great, uh, fantastic data, nothing to, nothing to crit uh, criticize, but my expectation was higher. Right. Yeah. Tanya, anything? No, I think we all expected this would be active. There's still a lot of question about optimal use of AR pathway inhibitors together with lutetium PSMA 617. Um, so, you know, whether the control, uh, whether the um, PSMA lutetium patients should be getting an AR pathway inhibitor together, whether that maybe was part of why it wasn't a double. Um, I think we still have a lot to learn about how to optimally use that combination. Right. Fails, Michael. Anything, Marina? I, th I think that we're 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 all just waiting <coughs> for more complete overall survival data. What should be pointed out here is that this only represents 45% of the anticipated uh, OS events. OS on the yeah, we'll talk about next. All right. Yeah. Sure. So just just to ask about this study, you know, it was the. Um, change of uh, androgen receptor inhibitor here as the control arm. Is that still a valid control arm? I mean, would results have been much different if we had just done this against placebo? Who are you asking? Anybody? I guess I'll ask you, Mike. Yeah, I, I, look, I, we're not going to solve this controversy today. And we came to uh, we blows. We have 13 minutes. We, can solve we came it. to blows on this last at last we year's did. meeting, if you recall, in relationship to the vision control arm. Yes. Um, but I would say, you know, about 40% of patients still are getting a second ARSI. And I think any clinician in this room would say, if that there are patients who move out of the chemo, uh, the hormone uh, AR-directed realm, and they're not all going on to dosotaxel, right? Yes. You may have oligometastatic progression. You may have stable radiographic disease that's manifest only by progressively by a rising PSA. And I would say that if you had a patient who you thought needed chemotherapy, you wouldn't put them on this trial, right? So it doesn't represent a specific set of decisions around a specific set of patients. This is not a negative control arm. It's a 20% response rate on that from a PSA perspective on the control arm. And unless everybody in this room says that they put every single patient on chemotherapy after they transition to castration-resistant disease, I would say that this question is actually like a very academic one, but not a pragmatic one. 
I love hearing my business I, I, <laughs> I can hear it all day. I love just, it. I just add to that. Uh, great question, Terry, anytime. But let's do another way to answer this is to see how many patients after discontinued this protocol therapy went on to receive chemotherapy. That's another way to look. So uh, we are looking forward to see post-protocol use of chemotherapy in the same patient population who got NHT, and I can guarantee you that will not be more than 30% or 40%. Great point. Yeah, so Again, just, to Mike's yeah. point, this, these are selected people who didn't need or want chemo, and so it's a, it is a different population, like any trial, right? Yeah. Or even want patient selection. Real-world yeah. data shows only 25% patients with any stage of prostate cancer, metastatic prostate cancer, receive chemotherapy in their lifetime. Yeah. That's a real-world data, yeah, flat out. Yeah. Um, let's talk about the overall survival data. So on top was, so there was 84% crossover, so I guess credit to the investigators for building in crossover, which we always criticize when we don't like the control arm, right? So credit to the, the study team. Uh, so this crossover adjusted is on top. You can see the numbers there, median follow-up just over a year, uh, you know, comparable median OS, um, where's the hazard? It was 0 0.8 right at the top. So kind of what you'd expect, nice RPFS benefit, benefit looks good, OS trending in the right direction, et cetera, right? We all, we're all happy with this. What struck me was this ITT population, right? So if we didn't adjust for crossover, right, I guess maybe, Raina, we'll start with you. So tell me why, if I'm the agency looking at these data, and I really don't like hazard ratios above one, right? And I say, well, you know what? Maybe it's actually better to wait, right? Maybe it's better to wait to get this drug after chemo because when I get it earlier, I might actually worsen survival. Well, we don't know that yet. I think these data are immature. There's only been about 45% of the events that have actually happened. I think we've demonstrated that it's I mean, 45 is not a small number, though, right? It's that it's, it's, it is active pre and post chemo. Some patients may never be chemo eligible at all, and now you're Okay. Now they're inhibited from being able to ever receive two life-prolonging agents as opposed to one. So I think we need to wait and see um, how the OS data is going to evolve. If to the ITT hazard ratio in the final analysis remains above one, should this drug get approved in this setting? Personally? Again, you're being recorded. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's uh, not to say how high above one. Um, 1.06. Yes, it should get approved. Absolutely. What, what number would you not approve it? <laughs> I know, I'm sorry, I'm putting you on the spot. It's my you job. know, I think you have to truly demonstrate a true decrement. I think speaking to, I, I think we need to understand if it's, if it's really greater than like 1.2 or something like that, what are these patients receiving or not receiving post coming off of this study and why? Are we I mean, making them majorly myelosuppressive exactly, and then right. they're not? I mean, it's, it's, it's plausible. It right? is. So we need they to benefit from this therapy early on, but then their bone marrow would ever speed up and they can't get other life prolonged right. agents, et cetera, et cetera. It's so we're not going to have like, it's not going to be this graph that's up in a silo. We're going to have hopefully additional long-term data around the talks, ongoing data around. Okay. Um, so I think it's got to be the package, you know, the, right? Like the FDA totality of the data. About, exactly. Okay. Right. I mean, Good. my first thought was look at the <laughs> toxicity and look at fatal toxicity and see if there was a clear um, difference where it was worse with the lutetian PSMA, I think that should factor into the decision making okay. about what that overall survival. How about there's no, there's no increase in fatal toxicity, right? That, that would there's not now, but I think your point is very good that we need to look at what's happening later it, when these data are mature, if that hazard ratio is still above one. So if you're working 
working, what's the cost? You're working at FDA and they bring these data now and say, we want to change our label to approval in the pre-chemo space. Do you say, okay, or do you say, you know what, that hazard ratio worries me, we need to wait and get more data? Are you asking me? Yeah. I think I think it's okay to approve it in this space at this time with these data. Even though the final hazard ratio might be above one for OS. I, I think I'm not seeing a signal that is very worrisome at the moment. I think these are just immature data. Okay. So my, my only take is we cannot have double standards or two standards for well, we inhibitor based, far <laughs> inhibitor based combinations asking for uh, uh, hazard ratio to be less than one, and here I'm like, first of all, I'm very supportive of approval. <laughs> that, that's my bottom line. say that first. Yeah. But this hazard ratio is 1.16, and we are saying it should be approved. But then hazard ratio in Propel is 1.06, and we are saying that should not be approved. So I think we have to have common standards for approval for all these drugs. I love it. Um, had a control arm allowed docetaxel, would the hazard ratio have been closer to 1.3? I mean, has, if the control arm had chemotherapy in it, would that arm have performed better? And had it performed better, would the hazard ratio have been even higher? Hmm. Michael, do you want to? I don't. I mean, I we don't, don't know. But we don't know the answer to that. Is it possible? But it, if you had docetaxel in that arm, okay, different question. If docetaxel was allowed in that arm. Would the control arm have performed better, better or worse? Probably better. So then the hazard ratio then would have been higher. So could be. Okay. But I, I would also point out, first of all, the hazard ratio is as much above one as it is below one. Right. The, the confidence interval spans one. Right. So it could come out to be actually um, the other way. Second, it's not that 45% of death events are in this analysis. It's 45% of the pre-specified events to assess OS. Okay. So that's even less than, it's not 45% of the overall population. Yeah, yeah, okay, I got So you. it really is immature data, um, and I, I think we have to wait and see, and it, it, you know, whether it actually is over one or, or if it isn't. I don't disagree I've, that we should be consistent, though, uh, you know, across trials or, or Have drug you classes. seen an analysis at this level of maturity where the hazard ratio is this far above one and then it comes below one? Yes, but uh, I, I, what, what I think that... What would make it... And I realize there's confidence I'm intervals. A, I totally get that. Yeah. But like, what would, what would change over time to sort of bring this meaningfully under one or even just... Well, more events. Whenever you're talking about fewer sure. events, then that's when... Other things are happening to patients than disease tox can make a real difference yep. in what the event rate looks like. So the, the thing about numbers is it takes the weird things that can happen out of the equation. And when you have smaller numbers, some stuff can happen Agreed. to some patients. And obviously, I'm not in a position to say what these events are, but yeah, yeah. I would say that stuff happens to people, and if the numbers are small, that stuff looks so, more important than when it's you know I got a lot of numbers. I just uh. want to talk about the patient voice here and the patient outlook on this. As Neeraj said, there is very low utilization of chemotherapy um, in the MCRPC setting, though it's a life-prolonging agent. And though, if we are gonna link access to 617 to docetaxel, we are therefore gonna restrict access for all patients. That is not a thing we should do. 
I mean, like, if we're going to link it to the 20% that only get... I don't disagree with you, but the agency's not going to buy that argument, right? No, I... I mean, that's, but, that's, right, you're saying, well, we have to approve it here because no. we don't want this other life-prolonging drug? Well, it's, it's, I mean, it's the reality. Like, there's some people you. that are not chemotherapy candidates. They're not, the, the data okay. are... But that wasn't here, I mean... Well, yeah, but I, you know, again, I, this goes to a trial was designed with a primary endpoint of RPFS, and and it met its primary endpoint resoundingly. So you're OS doesn't matter. I'm not saying Final that it doesn't OS matter. Final OS 1.2. But it's it's how the trial was designed, and ultimately, a large. I mean, you know, patients are coming knocking at the door for such a therapy, and. Like, many patients will never see chemotherapy, though they have MCRPC. I get it. I get it. Yeah. So I think that we need to make sure that our patients have access to life-prolonging therapies. I'm 100% with you. It's just when I saw that OS Hazard, I was like, whoa, that's, that's troubling. Yeah. Right? And again, it, it We need just, to see what these people get later. Totally like, agree. We need follow-up. I, I mean, of course, we agree yeah. with all that. I'm just worried it's not going to come below one. Because that's, know, the, that's not a huge confidence interval, right? I don't mean this in any uh, derogatory way. <laughs> but... <laughs> turn off the recording for a second. <laughs> but there was a lot of discussion in, in, in thinking about this presentation. And with these very immature should OS data, present should it? we um, present it? And I said... I am sure that the academic community is mature enough <laughs> to regard these data with enough you circumspection have to or know that they're immature and not to create an undue deal about immature data because they have that knowledge and perspective to recognize was, that it's immature. This, was, this OS analysis <laughs> was triggered by the PFS, right? Like, is that right? I'm asking. No. And I, and I no, it's a secondary endpoint of the trial. Right, right, but why, did, why was the OS analyzed now? Because we felt that, that all of the data should be transparently revealed. But it must to have been a statistical analysis plan that OS was analyzed. You have a hazard ratio oh, yeah. there because it yeah. was triggered. Yes. Okay. The other thing that I will say is I commend the investigators for PSMA four for allowing crossover. Agreed. When have agreed, we agreed, ever agreed. seen a crossover rate at eighty four percent? I mean, that is agreed. astounding. So like that also speaks to the fact that patients want this therapy and it works. Right. Don't deny them, Brian. <laughs> Don't deny the patients. Ben, please ask me a question. Rescue me. Rescue me. So I need help. You, as a researcher embedded in the community and also with a phase one bias, so that's real. We are seeing a lot of patients post pluvicto that do have exhausted bone marrow. So to the point of the panel, I think it's important to see subsequent lines of therapy. Is there a real imbalance? We need to see what the actual if we can present the data, what does it look like based on SUV? Because this is clearly an active drug. I don't think anyone doubts that. And it's active in this space. I don't think anyone doubts that. But as this expands across the country and touches all the 80% of prostate patients that are not treated at centers like yours, but treated at centers that I touch, we have to be careful that if there is a biomarker that one will keep costs down because it's an incredibly expensive medication, and prevent future toxicity that we need to be using that. I would reckon that we do have biomarkers here, therapy, other data sets that do suggest these SUVs matter. And perhaps it's a dosing thing where we do adaptive dosing, or perhaps it's using better pet selection and not just using pure vision criteria in the upfront pre-chemo space. 
thoughts about that? Because I, I'm a little that's concerned about it. That's why we need an adaptive-based trial, and that's why our cooperative groups yeah. need to lead and, that and effort, and 100%. And um, Mike, you are one of the leaders of this study. We'll, we, are, we would be very interested in looking at PFS and OS by baseline SUV down the line. Oh, you, How, you certainly will. Yeah. <laughs> and, because uh, I think that will inform practice. And in fact, the, 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 the paper for vision looking at all of the parameters uh, for predicting uh, OS and having a nomogram is, is just submitted. So no one's looking to not reveal to everybody what the biomarkers for optimizing the, the patient Please. population yeah. is. You know, it's so I, I think it gets back then to the previous discussion about, we all agree, adaptive dosing and scans, we, you know, just the indiscriminate application of six no matter what doesn't make sense, right? So, all right, we're running out of time. I'm gonna skip through that. <laughs> And maybe I'll just... That was a great question, Brian. It's a great the question. We'll, we'll put it up after the session's okay. over. I'm on a yeah. tight schedule here in Raj. So this is um, obviously M M Michael and Howard Shear's clinical disease states, which is now almost a decade old. And the stars obviously are where there are uh, ongoing or planned trials in this space. So I don't know if Michael, you want to just describe this briefly. Yeah, so I think what we're just looking in terms of the next year, there are year or two, where we're going to have released registration data or we have registration data. So we have vision for the latter part of the disease. There are three registration trials that are either released like PSMA4 in terms of data and two that are, uh, splash is accrued and we're, we should be getting data shortly, Eclipse uh, after that. So you might have, might have three drugs in that first line MCR PC space. And then PSMA addition is in castration sensitive disease. So that's fully accrued and waiting for events as well. And then there are studies that are now uh, being designed and intended to open in 24 for the rising PSA uh, clinical space. And there are several that, well, there's one that's ongoing in the localized disease space at Mike Hoffman's shop at the Peter Mac. And then there's several that are being, uh, that will open in 2024 for the neoadjuvant space as well. So should see a lot pretty expanded repertoire here over do the next year or two. Do you think we could, last question on the slide, do you think we could get to a day where instead of like having it in a clinical state or whatever, you're just dosing based on PSMA PAT. So you get a couple doses here and then you're in a different state and you get a couple doses there. You're sort of just sprinkling it in whenever they're PSMA PAT positive. The issue will be the regulatory concern of, of uh, renal exposure to radiation over the patient's lifetime. That, okay. that, yeah, that will fair. be a ceiling that may. Okay play a role in that. All right, um, last two slides, uh, PSMA-based combination therapy, and, and again, Michael, I'll just call on you to sort of tell us what's, these are obviously combination therapies in different lines that you see there. What, what stands out, what's exciting? I mean, obviously we've been talking about single agent, but combos are coming. Well, we mentioned the ENZA-P study already, and, uh, and the, also the PRINCE trial has been presented in terms of lutetium and PEMBRO, but certainly these combinations, they are all looking feasible. I think that one of the more interesting ones from a completely radiopharmaceutical standpoint is the combination studies of alphas and betas together sequentially or bone versus tumor directed, so there's a lot uh, going on there. All of these are strategies to try to optimize the, the 
the treatment effects of both therapies, so I think that these are looking pretty good. And then final word, you mentioned alphas. Just tell us how, they, how they're different from betas and why they might be better, worse, same, The alphas really release uh, much more energy, but over a much shorter pathway, so you get a lot of energy release with little uh, deep, uh, deeper tissue penetration. Um, they behave quite differently than betas, so I would think of them, if you were going to sort of think in the AR world of the difference between Abby and Enza, they're two different, really, drugs in the same, using radioligand therapy as a similar mechanism, but uh, there really are different drugs. We have different targets and targeting molecules with the alphas as well. There's an open HK2-directed study, but there are other targets that are being planned as well. And uh, I think we should be seeing PSMA-directed alphas. They're already open in phase one. Outside the US will be open within the, in the US in, uh, in 2024. Awesome. I want to thank the panel for a great discussion. I appreciate it.